ladies and gentlemen, how are you? Thank you so much for tuning in to this Nerdy 430, the podcast where, as you know, comedian Tim Keck and I talk about nerdyish things for 30-ish minutes. My name is Kevin Bauer, and today we are talking about Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them 3, colon, The Secrets <laughs> of Dumbledore. Tim, I think the biggest secret of Dumbledore is that he was going to come in and make this his franchise. <laughs> this is no longer a Newt Scavenger franchise. We're all in on the Dumbledore family. Turns out we have been the whole time. Yeah, it turns out the secret was they probably shouldn't be calling this Fantastic Beasts. It's crazy. And I wanted to, you know, the first one is called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. This sure. one is called Fantastic Beasts colon the secret of Dumbledore. So they are like sticking with this Fantastic Beasts thing, which is very misleading. And oh, I, yeah. I was I was thinking about this before, like they can't call it Harry Potter because Harry Potter mm-hmm. is not in it. And they made this Fantastic Beasts movie. And now they did a second one, which was pretty good. I thought I like those movies. And then this one is clearly not about the Fantastic Beasts anymore, but they're locked into this thing. Why couldn't they just call this movie The Secrets of Dumbledore? Could they call they it? Absolutely could have. <laughs> could they call it the magical, magical world or something like that? Right. Isn't that the term they use at Universal Studios, like magical world of Harry Potter? It's a, could I this think be the magical world, world, the secrets of Dumbledore. It's the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Oh, the That's Wizarding a World. Fascinating question. Though. Just call it the Wizarding World. The Wizarding World, Fantastic Beasts, and Where to Find Them. The, the Wizarding World, The Secrets of Dumbledore. Wizarding World, The Secrets of Dumbledore. I don't know. I just, Kevin, it's clearly have no idea what they're doing <laughs> with this movie. <laughs> they have nothing planned uh, whatsoever. Uh, it rem- it gave me Star Wars feelings. You know, like. What is it? Star Wars, the rise of Skywalker, you know, like the last one mm-hmm. in like the new trilogy where like just like 10 minutes in, it was like, oh, so they had no plan. <laughs> like, oh, man. oh, so they put zero thought into this. They are just they're building the plane while it's in the air. Right. Like they're improvising this shit. It is fascinating to me that this is a franchise worth this amount of money. This is one of the most beloved franchises that exists Despite J.K. Rowling's best efforts to mm-hmm. tank everything, it remains <laughs> one of the most popular, uh, like, entertainment universes. It's some of the best IP. So the fact that they're putting this much money into it and they're not doing a little bit more planning, the Star Wars comparison is so perfectly apt. Because in that one, you have J.J. Abrams starting with episode seven and seeming to have a pretty great idea of where he wants to go. It's a reboot of episode four, but we introduced this new cast and it seems like he has these ideas in mind and we're building to something really cool. Then Ryan Johnson comes along with episode eight and says, actually, no. Delivers like a very cool space battle. One of the coolest space battles I've ever seen, but a completely pointless Poe Dameron storyline. An insane left turn for the entire franchise. Uh, and just seems to completely disregard everything that J.J. Abrams set up. Like nothing that happened in episode eight seemed like it was a continuation of what was potentially on the books for where the story was headed. And then J.J. Abrams coming back for episode nine seemed like he spent half the movie trying to write it back out of where it had been left in episode eight and then finish the trilogy. Like it seemed like he wanted to make two movies at once. Um, It's insane that happens. How? How the fuck 
They didn't uh, talk to each be. other. They weren't around. They didn't. There was no communication here. Like that is the thing that we're both Marvel enthusiastic enthusiasts. Kevin Feige is a is a is so good at this. He's mm-hmm. a master of this. And I think most of it is just like having a having a conversation with these guys. I can't believe that these guys didn't didn't talk to each other at all. But it feels kind of like that with this movie it was like, yeah, it has. I rewatched the second one uh, in anticipation of this movie. And I was actually just watching the first one again, like when this started, because I was like, oh, this is really fun. Like, I kind of like really liked I kind of really liked the first one. I'm all in on Newt's Commander. I love the Fantastic Beasts. I love his whole thing. And there's so many great details in the other two movies that are very fun and neat. But every time they get away from Newt, every time they get away from the Fantastic Beasts, my interest drops, my interest wanes. And it's just not as good. They just do not have anything going on and like the second one the second one ends in such a way where it feels like it's like building to something like something cool is going to happen and then it's just like a massive time it feels like a massive time jump to the third one where like Nagini was like a character at the end of the second one we're like what's going on with Nagini uh Tina was a character at the end of the second one where I'm like you know why what happened with Tina I was just Googling before this call about why Tina is not in this movie. And it might be some off screen differences uh, between, uh, you know, gender discussions with J.K. Rowling. They kept her out of this. So uh, fucking go, Tina, <laughs> go, Tina. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I think we're both pretty much golden rule people, you know, treat other people the way you want to be treated. Like you should be whatever you want to do. Do it, man. Go for it. You know, like, I don't know. And J.K. Rowling is saying I. It's hard to separate the art from the artist with this stuff, but like J.K. Rowling created an amazing world and it would be great if we could just not hear her talk about anything else. <laughs> like, just shut up and maybe write a better movie. Um, but yeah, I the the timing on this is crazy. And I wanted to I wanted to discuss the timeline for this because I couldn't find it's it seems tricky. I'm on like the official Harry Potter wiki. And you don't mean the timeline for the movie being produced. You mean the timeline canonically. I mean, the canonical the movie world. timeline okay. for this. I'm with you. I'm with the you. The first movie was in 1926. Okay. The second movie is in 1927. And then this movie apparently takes place in 1932. Even though I could have sworn in this movie at some point, someone says, when you came to New York two years ago. So that like completely negates what's going on. What we do know is that Dumbledore definitively defeats Grindelwald in 1945 because it is the end of World War II. And that is something that was like implied in the Harry Potter universe that is canonical. World War II coincided with a battle between Grindelwald and Dumbledore and in a war in the wizarding world, right? Which Tim, culminates in 1945. I want to I jump early <laughs> to an old segment we had called Reckless Speculation. Yes. Tim, Reckless Speculation, do you think we are going to get a Grindelwald and Hitler team up. <laughs> I think, I think that is, uh, I think that's what, what happened, right? Like he's, he's, they imply in Harry Potter that he is like the, the wizarding <laughs> Hitler. He's yeah. wizard Hitler. Like that's his role. Like, I think they work. I think they kind of, my impression is that, that they kind of all do this thing where like what happens in the wizarding world somehow has like a it's all like parallel thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's a wizarding, if there's like a human Hitler, then there's a wizard Hitler. If there's a wizard war, then there's a human war where it's just like these things 
there's like a there's a, a mirrored quality to them where like if something sure. is happening in the wizarding community, it has an influence on the human world or whatever. I don't know. So in the year 2016, <laughs> Gilderoy Lockhart was elected the president. <laughs> of the wizarding world. That oh, is uh, insanely perfect. New minister of magic, Gilderoy Lockhart. <laughs> yeah, but the time, but you can already the timeline, I feel like doesn't make sense and contradicts what I swear I heard in the movie, which was two years from New York. and. The World War II starts 1939, right? So, like, there's a big time jump here. If they're in the 30s, they've got to get at least, whatever, five to ten years into the future. Five to, to 18 years in the future. Or five and to now, 13 years in the future. We had both heard that there were a different number of movies left in this franchise. You had heard that this was supposed to be a five-movie franchise. I yes. heard this was supposed to be a whopping seven movies. Did you look? Do we know uh, which one of those is true? I did not, but I, I mean, but I'm, I'm standing by my opinion being correct, which is <laughs> having done no, having done no research, I'm going to nothing less. I'm going to choose to believe in myself, uh, here and, uh, <laughs> it's and very just, president Lockhart of you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's, it's just crazy. It's just the more you look at it, the more everything kind of withers and you realize there is no there's like no plan for the franchise i think they kind of left themselves an out here for whatever reason they have this ip that's incredible that's like so valuable and they put so much money in and they really set this movie up you know spoiler alert so that they can walk away from it like they have the possibility of not making any more of these it seems like they kind of put a little bow on at least newt's commander's story they could easily put this down walk away from it and never do it or maybe they'll pick it up with like a Dumbledore solo movie, you know, and you could be like a background character or something. But it's crazy. I mean, the whole thing is just kind of crazy, right? I don't know. They're all that seems kind of sloppy. What's a shame about it all is that there are things in these movies that do work. Uh, both of us really like. Newt Scamander as a character, both of us really like uh, Jacob. I think is his name, uh, Dan Fogel, Fogler, Dan Fogler. We both really like his character. Queenie, great character. Um, the Niffler, my God. The place I love went the nuts when the Niffler came out. <laughs> Niffler is wonderful. And like these little hijinks, when they're actually doing Newt Scamander stuff and actually following through on the promise that calling a movie Fantastic Beasts and then a colon entails, it works. All the Dumbledore shit is what's not working. Jude Law is wonderful, but like, I Credence is a boring character. I have yes. a whole, I've thought through, I've thought a lot about this, and I have two main things that I want to present in this episode. The first is a new philosophy that I want to get your opinion on because it's a philosophy that I think I'm going to deeply subscribe to from here on out. Yes. Please explore the four quadrants of this philosophy. Okay. Quadrant one, it's got to be colorful. <laughs> um, we'll call back to our Everything Everywhere All at Once episode, now available on Spotify and Apple. The, uh, the philosophy, Tim, is this. I think all accidents in movies are boring. I think you can have something that looks like an accident happen to someone, and it can be interesting if that quote-unquote accident was caused by another character that we care about's actions. 
It has to be causative. There has to be something that we have seen on screen motivating whatever quote unquote accident happens in order for us to care about it. Otherwise, there's just nothing for us to latch onto. In the Fantastic Beast franchise, that expresses itself through these obscurials, who are these people with magical powers that are godly. They're beyond what any wizard or witch could possibly hope to possess, but they can't control them at all, which is boring. It's not interesting to see. Um, When you have a character that isn't in control of themselves, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, any werewolf movie, The Incredible Hulk, the interest in those movies tends to come from the actions that that character is taking to contain that beast within them. We aren't really seeing any of that here. It's just being used as a plot device of like, oh, look, such incredible power that no one can control. And the first movie is just like a, a dust cloud that's ripping through New York City. We just don't give a fuck about it. It's a character in there, but it's not. We didn't see what caused this. It just kind of happened. There's no interest for us there. What do you think about that? I feel we were talking about uh, the other day where we were discussing, too, that this is actually like a man versus nature thing. Right. I feel mm-hmm. what our other conversation was, but that kind of feels like what the obscurial is, is it's just like a it's like its own creature, its own entity. It's not a person. I don't feel like I attribute emotions to it. Um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, it is kind of boring. I think there is. I was just just rewatching the first one and they're talking about the obscurial and they're explaining the concept of an obscurial. And it's like a child who's had their their magic like pushed down and they try and like swallow it because of whatever environment they're in. They're trying to hide. And then that comes bubbling out and it's something that's dangerous to them and ultimately kills them. And I think that's like a really cool concept. I don't think it necessarily lends to the object of the obscurial being an interesting character. I think those are two different things, right? Like you were talking about, like Credence is boring. Credence is not interesting. I don't really care about Credence, but his kind of crime is just I think the way people react to Credence is more interesting than Credence himself, I think. Is that kind of what you were saying? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I also think that there is a way if you are going to have a character have something unpredictable about them, there is a way to do that and make it more interesting than they just turn into a giant cloud of smoke. Think about, I think it's uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, where Ron busts his wand, has the busted up wand the whole time. And every time he tries to use it, you never know what's going to happen. So he's spitting out slugs and all that kind of stuff. That is fun. That's a way where it's like, it's, you know, an extreme example here because they're trying to make these, I think a little bit grittier. So he probably wouldn't be barfing up slugs, but to see a version of this where Credence, uh, is maybe trying to get away with using a little bit of magic, even if he doesn't really know what he's doing in the same way that Harry Potter in the first book makes the glass disappear in the snake exhibit. You know, maybe he does a couple things like that and he does something like he really wants a donut and, doesn't have cash for it and then levitates cash out of somebody's hand. But then everything around him starts levitating and then things down the street start levitating and cars are levitating and he freaks out and it all drops at once. There are ways to make this a lot more interesting than just, yeah, he's basically a human explosion. There definitely are. He's basically just a bullet in this story, right? He's like Grindelwald's taking a shot at Dumbledore and he's sending him in. And I don't know. They don't. 
I agree with what you're saying. I just feel like I wish you were wrong. <laughs> I think is what it is in this. Cause like, I feel like, like, I don't really get, I don't really get why he is just, why I don't care about credence at all. It's just, he's just so uninteresting and not fun in the way he's used. And I feel like, th- I feel like there is a way that his character is compelling, but like the way Bruce Banner, like Bruce Banner is compelling, but mm-hmm. that's, still kind of a different thing. You're right. The way they presented the obscure, whatever they've done with credence, he's a quiet, boring guy. Who's just kind of the victim of everything, but also is lashing out violently. has no control. And there's a way to present it where he like focuses it or harnesses his skills. And yeah. I don't know. Grindelwald like kind of like focuses him and sends him at Dumbledore, you know, he doesn't ever really have an opinion. He's not an active character. He's a cardboard cutout in the first movie. Like he just, Ezra Miller just stands there and broods. He's it's very, yeah. very strange. And in this movie, he's really a metaphor for, uh, I forget his name, but Dumbledore's brother's mistake, right? Yeah. Or like the mistakes of the Dumbledore family is just a physical representation of that, uh, as his child. Um, Huh? I don't know. Hey, can I can I bring up another? Uh, I guess beef yeah. I have, which yeah. is just oh, oh. I guess going back to the. <laughs> Where's the beef? <laughs> going back to like these other movies and what they've done so well with Newt's Commander. There are so many good moments with him in the first and second one. I was just watching this scene where they're like, and even the premises of the first two I think are so much better, right? Like the first one is like Newt's Commander. He's got a suitcase full of fun animals. There's a crazy accident. The animals get out and he's got to track them down. Like what a fun premise is that? Just a fun, like approachable, goofy premise. And the com- and there was just something, a line that stood out to me where he's like talking to um, Kowalski and like right after they've met the girls and he's like, people like you, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like a perfect like kind of like on the spectrum like observation where and, and Jacob's like oh yeah but I'm sure they like you too and he's like no no people really don't find me very uh, approachable and then he goes and does this whole thing with animals and he's like acting like them and rubbing his body on trees and stuff and it's just like incredibly endearing uh, and wonderful and those moments are awesome and then in the second one they're trying to like recruit him to the ministry of magic. And they're like, basically want him to be an aura. And he's like, I don't do that. I'm not an aura. I'm not a detective. I like just want to do this animal thing. And then what does he do immediately after saying that is he like basically becomes a detective and tracks down Tina. There's like this whole scene where he's in this square and uh, he pulls out the Niffler and he sprays gold everywhere. And he's using the animal to like help figure like find her footprints. And then he has his wand. He puts it to his ear, becomes a little trumpet. He does all this like fun little magic where he's like blowing out like dust and things like that and then he's rolling around on the ground licking the concrete and it's just like this hilarious scene but also like shows that he is actually good enough to do this thing like he is incredibly talented and although unconventional he is good enough to be doing all these things that other characters want him to do and that's fun and that's like a fun character thing in this he is just I don't know. I don't know what he is in this. There's no there's no really fun charm. There's one charming moment that I think stood out to both of us where he's oh, doing yeah. the thing and it was pigeonholed in the movie. It makes no goddamn sense. It has nothing to do with anything. Uh, Newt doesn't need to be in this movie. He is not relevant to it in any way. And the way that they're choosing to use him as is just like he's doing things that anyone could do. 
You know, yeah. he's just he's on Dumbledore's team. Dumbledore has assembled a team and Newt's on it. But you know what? Newt is a one man team. He's already got Jacob. He's got all of his animals. His animal menagerie is like already a super like Avengers team. Right. Like in the fun way he uses them. They don't come up with any new animals for him to use. It's just the Niffler and uh, Pickett who somehow has gained the sentience to like put on a pair of glasses and like make jokes and stuff. He's, he's freaking Groot. Okay. I don't, know, I don't know what happened with these, these guy. He puts on a pair. When he put on a pair of glasses, I was like, fuck this, fuck this movie. He cannot do that. He's an animal. I mean, the whole thing in the first two movies was like, these are animals and it takes some skill to like harness them and point them in the right direction. Right. You can't just release a tiger. You got to like trick the tiger into doing what you want to do. You got to, talk to it like an animal and in this they're full-on like members of his team i mean it's straight up Groot. it's like they're pushing buttons they're they're like letting him out of stuff they're grabbing his wand and bringing it to him and it's like this isn't what they do that's not their thing they can't do that like this is dumb i don't know they figured out a way to like ruin this world and ruin newt and that's that's the end of my newt monologue i'm sorry it's heartbreaking because they i'm gonna i'll drop this in as a thief i think you're a thief uh, the scene that endeared both of us is the scene where he does the little hand gesture dance with the little scorpion cockroach shrimp things. It's amazing. Start to finish. That scene is exactly what this franchise should be. It's awesome. It's so good. Uh, it has a jarring amount of like violence and danger involved in it we see a man get impaled then carried down while he's screaming in pain and terror and we see his half digested body flop up into the (laughs) foreground of the shot while these little shrimp eat him i spit out my raisinets i couldn't fucking believe how insane this was i did like nothing else tonally is anywhere near that scene but it works so well and the contrast between the audience needs to know too that Kevin didn't spit at the raisinets out of disgust. Kevin enjoys raisinets. He eats them for some reason. So the last <laughs> thing he wants to do is get them out of his system. For some reason, this lunatic is out there putting them in. So go on, Kevin. I just want to create context for you spitting out your raisinets. That oh, was out of shock boy. and surprise. It was oh, jarring. Hey, that was the thing they chose to do. I'm paying hand over fist to get those raisinets <laughs> in my mouth. This scene <laughs> got them out of my mouth. Um, Yeah. I think the contrast between the danger of the giant scorpion shrimp thing and the physical comedy involved in the smaller ones was beautiful. It worked so well. It was so fun to watch. We felt stakes. Um, We had his brother there as a straight man to, you know, display how weird Newt is being, but how it's working in this situation. Just start to finish. Fantastic. Uh, I think these movies work really well. When they're doing one of two things. One is they're making Newt Scamander Crocodile Dundee. He is a guy who yes. does not belong. He's got yes. this weird shit going on. He's Wizard Steve Irwin and they have put him in New York City. And we discovered in this one that the franchise also works really well when he is Indiana Jones. So you take him out of the like professor ship. You take him out of the academic setting And you drop him into the wilderness and it's a lot of fun to see him seamlessly go through these really like exotic locales with all these crazy animals while the more traditionally like uh, neutral characters around him are not excelling as well. It's great. It works either way. There's two incredible directions you can take this guy. Uh, And I think we've seen a cumulative 
20 minutes of that across these three movies. Crocodile Dundee is the perfect analogy, Kevin. I mean, honestly, it's also just a great analogy for like the the general fish out of water storytelling, right? Is like when you see Crocodile Dundee in the Australian outback, he's the fucking man. He could do whatever he wants. He is a god out there. He knows everything. He knows his way around. When he comes to New York, he doesn't know which way is up. He has the same knowledge he has. He can apply it to the New York environment and like still come out ahead in like a new unique way and like has unique problem solving based on his personal experience that he's applying to this weird situation and then when they go back to australia he's the man again you know like mm. it's great to see newt's commander in his element doing his thing and it's also awesome to see him in an environment that an aura would treat completely differently apply his own knowledge and his own skill set to this stuff like you can kind of tell watching some of these other movies that he is not the best like magic like like fighter like he it doesn't seem like he really fights with his magic like at all uh, mm-hmm. But he does use a lot of his creatures to fight and he does kind of manipulate things with that uh, to to like fight or get out of situations or things like he ends up using his creatures like he has his own very unique skill set, which I think is interesting because in general, Harry Potter is a pretty bland uh, world from that regard. It's very soft magic. It's just everyone has a wand. Everyone. There's a power level thing here, too. That's very interesting to me, Kevin, that I think is a maybe a problem of like the just dealing with the soft magic in general. There's like this thing of like, Oh, Albus Dumbledore is the strongest wizard. And like, why, why is he the strongest? What did he do? Uh Does he know more spells? Because they don't speak spells in this. They just wave their wands and whatever happens. So does he have more magic? Do you get more magic? Is he better at it? Is he smarter? Like, I don't know. I guess I don't understand I guess I don't understand why every wizard isn't able to like fight Grindelwald. Like what makes Grind- what makes these guys so much better than everybody else in a world where everybody went to the same school to learn magic, right? Like everyone <laughs> yeah. went to Hogwarts. So you had to be so good to graduate Hogwarts, right? So then what happens after you just forget how to do this or like when I was in high school, I didn't try very hard in math, but if I knew that, after I graduated high school, people were going to run around and use math at me. And if they <laughs> used math at me in the right way, it could kill me. I would have tried a little bit harder in math. Yeah. But maybe it's that kind of thing where it's like, you know, a lot of like defense against the dark arts is the quadratic equation. And it's just something that most people just don't don't use. They're like, I don't need to defend the Crucio court court curse or whatever. Like, why would I need to do that? I'm just going to be an accountant or whatever. A magical baker. Uh, I don't know. That's fucking interesting. I have one other I have one other big thing that I want to bring up here before we close out. Um, I think that this is. An effects movie, I think that this is a uh, I think it's a special effects movie, and I think we have reached a point in cinema where we need to define special effects movies as their own genre. At a certain point, there were enough action movies that were coming out that hadn't been identified as an action movie yet, where people were like, the story was kind of light on this one, but it did have a lot of fight scenes and the fight scenes were really good, good enough that it carried us through the bad story. I feel like that is the same thing that has started happening maybe the past like 10 years or so, maybe more um, with special effects as computer generated imagery has gotten better, where it's like. There are movies that exist now 
purely because a scene or two look really cool. And there are choices that are made for movies that do not make narrative sense because the special effects in making it come true would look good. Think about Havoc in X-Men First Class. Havoc is a person that shoots directed beams of energy out of him. He's Cyclops' brother. They decided to show that in X-Men First Class with energy hula hoops. Not something that has ever been a part of that character. Did it look cool? I mean, sure, I guess. But you know that was shoehorned in there because somebody came up with the energy hula hoop effect. I mean, Kevin Smith has talked before about how when they tried to hire him, uh, his ill-fated stint when they tried to hire him to make a Superman movie, he was dealing with the producer and the producer was like, do whatever the fuck you want. Just the final fight of the movie has to be Superman fighting a giant robotic spider. He just wanted a giant robotic spider to happen. Kevin Smith hated it. He didn't want to do it. There's a very funny video on YouTube of him talking about this. Um, the movie ends up falling apart. A couple years later, he goes to see the movie Wild Wild West. Combination, the movie comes through. There's a giant robotic spider. He didn't even need to check the credits. He knew exactly who produced it. The Sony email leak after North Korea was mad about the movie The Dictator confirmed the same shit where it's like there are a lot of people in charge. They're demanding things based on special effects or like things that they think would target certain demographics um, that ruined the narrative of the movie. And I've been talking for a long time. I just think it's prevalent enough now that we need to call it like it is. What do you think? I think it is. Were there any scenes like that, like CGI uh, masterpieces that you thought were worth it in this or that like do you have any specific examples that stood out i mean the thing that i i took away which is maybe a different thing was like when they went to like the cave with like the spiders and the tarantulas and a scene that we both really loved my mm-hmm. first thought was oh how did we get here <laughs> you know and i don't think it's a good script or a good movie when you're constantly asking yourself which i was oh how did these characters get here Sure. They just appeared in a place and then a scene would start and they would be somewhere else. And like, okay, so this is like a fundamental breakdown in storytelling, editing and and filmmaking on its own. But I didn't necessarily think of the CGI aspect of it. Uh, Was there anything like that that specifically stood out to you? Absolutely. So to me, the scorpion tail thing, that's an example of how an effects scene would work well in another movie, because much like an action scene in a good movie, it exists to drive the story forward and to show us things about the characters. And I think the Scorpion Tail scene did. A scene that I think was a purely effects scene was the quote-unquote assassination attempt of Kowalski versus Grindelwald at the dinner um, when there ends up being this big wizarding battle where people leave the, I don't know, dining room very slowly. There's an assassination attempt going on. People leave extremely slowly and calmly while uh, Jack Bukowski using a wand that he can't really control. All of the spells and stuff going on in that scene do not make any fucking sense at all. If there's an assassination attempt, you drop the person. But instead, people are firing off seemingly like very mild but very cool looking spells at each other. And Jessica Williams throws the book and the like paper staircase comes out of the book. That's an effects scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're 100% somebody came right. up with somebody came up with what if you could walk on the pages of a book and then the scene was created from there. Effects scene, baby. And it was super cool. It, it was, was super cool. I, I liked I watching like, it. I feel like recognizing it for what it is and removing myself from expecting some kind of a story. Like I'm not going to see the transporter and I'm like, man, that fight scene was great, but 
I didn't really get a feel for what henchman number three was thinking. Like if I have removed myself from that and I'm able to tell myself like, oh, well, this is an effects movie. So this is going to be an effects scene. It's going to look really cool and I'm going to get nothing else from it. I can stomach that a little better. I think I think the soft magic system too maybe complicates it because if you were a wizard, why wouldn't you just be blasting like spells at each other? It just it's kind of like like all of the bad guys just shoot spells. They just shoot whatever, I don't know, the killing curse, whatever stunning curse they do. And then there were other fight scenes where um what's her face? I'm blanking on her name. Uh Serafina? Was that the the woman's name who was like working with them? Uh oh, Jessica Williams. I well, I don't know. I don't remember who Jessica Williams is. Okay, let me look at this list. She's a Here Daily Show correspondent. Oh, just Oh my God, it was Jessica Williams. I didn't know it yeah. was her. Holy crap. Okay, so Jessica Williams, who, by the way, is doing a Carmen Sandiego accent that is oh, absolute garbage. The whole time, like she's, accent. she started talking and I was like, there's no, this is a bit. There's no way she's going to do this the whole time. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. She, she, she did. She spoke like an insane person the entire time. It was the most, it was the single most cartoonish thing that has happened in any of the Harry Potter movies. The least believable thing. Nobody actually talks like that. She was talking like she was doing an impression of a Carmen Sandiego character. It was insane. Um, Horrible. But when she fights, she was like, like using her magic to like grab objects and throw them at them. And it's, it just seems like creativity with magic is like an inherent trait of like the good guys and the Mm -hmm. bad guys just do bland stuff. They're just blasting like they're just shooting guns, basically. And the other then the heroes have to do something fabulous, like do something cool with the book and all of that stuff. But I I guess it's like, why isn't everybody doing that? Why? There's just no rules. There's no rules on how any of this works. And I don't know. It's we kind of accept it in Harry Potter. Like it is what it is. There's other duel. There's duels. I don't know. Like in dueling club, they'll do like dueling club club or whatever in like Harry Potter and they're just zapping each other. And then when like Voldemort and Dumbledore fight each other, they're like turning a water spout into like a dragon and like everything into sand. And like it's just like this visual thing. And it's also mm-hmm. an entirely unnecessary visual thing. Right. They should just be blasting like Avada Kedavra curses at each other. Right. Like, why are they making water dragons? Why are they doing this stuff? It's really just so we can see it. There's no logic behind enchanting a book to fight why not just i don't know unless there is maybe i'm missing something there but whatever no Um, i I do think it would be better if both sides were being more creative i think that's inherently better because yeah it is it is kind of like if there was a uh like a bank robbery scene in a movie and you know the the robbers have guns and the cops are just flipping tables at them it would be ridiculous it's weird. And it's just like a lack of rules like creates that, right? Like if there were rules on like, you can only do so much magic, you had a limit on what magic you could do. The bigger the object, the harder it is, the smaller it is, whatever. Like then you'd have some scale for stuff like, which is just, are, these are all things that I've read in like Brendan Sanderson books. There's like limit, there's like rules. Like that's like hard magic is like, there's things on it. But like, even in the, in the previous movie, Grindelwald creates a gigantic fire dragon and it takes 30 wizards to stop it. And it's like, okay, so can anyone else learn the dragon spell? No one else can learn the fire dragon spell that almost destroyed all of London. 
but it takes 30 people to stop it. Like what? Like why? Why can he do the giant dragon spell that's unstoppable and no one else is capable of doing this? Why is Dumbledore able to do this weird mind thing and nobody else can? Because as far as I can tell, you just read a spell, you wave your wand the right way and you do it. It's not a physical strain on you. It's I don't know. This is a whole other conversation about like magic systems and all that. Uh, I had one final point I wanted to bring up, Kevin, one final thought. Yeah. And I guess I'll pose this as a question initially is like, was there anything in this movie? It's a prequel to the Harry Potter series that made you look at Harry Potter differently. And the one that stood out to me, and I don't know if this is that uh, insightful necessarily, but they made a point of saying that the Phoenix shows up to a Dumbledore when it's about to die, uh, when he's about to die or, or she, I'm assuming we've never met a she Dumbledore, but if there was, maybe she would get a Phoenix unless it's a sexist Phoenix, in which case I, I wouldn't put it past JK Rowling. <laughs> write a a very prejudiced phoenix into her stories so so dumbledore as long as we've known him since the sorcerer's stone has had a phoenix so it's not really addressed in the harry potter books but if he's had a phoenix for as long as you know harry was in school i don't know when he had it before that he's seen it like die and like live i mean it, it either contradicts uh, what we know about Harry Potter or presents a scenario in which Dumbledore knew he was going to die because the Phoenix showed up to him and he just had, he had that knowledge for a while. And it was, I mean, it was at least five years in school with Harry that before he died, six years before he died. So he, he had, had this Phoenix, Phoenix for six, six years with the knowledge that he was going to die. Right. Cause it, it definitely saves him in the chamber of secrets, uh, which is book two. I'm pretty calm. I, I feel like you might've had in the Sorcerer's Stone. So at the very least he's had it for five years, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of flawed too. Cause like, I know I'm going to die. I don't have a Phoenix. Right. Like, so what's the time limit it, on this? Exactly. Like Phoenix is just oh, fl- so fly strange. around to fuck with people. <laughs> they just like show yeah. up and start loitering and they're like, shit, man, I guess I'm, <laughs> I guess I'm a goner. It's like a black Dude. cat like crossing that's your path. a weasley prank for sure <laughs> weasley prank for sure is it'll be like a i don't know like a cinnamon phoenix and it's like a phoenix that just goes and fucks with somebody <laughs> it finds the nearest dumbledore and, and fucks with them <laughs> that'd be funny i don't know uh i can't tell if this made harry potter better or worse i'm leaning towards worse i'm not sure anything good came out of this uh movie but if they do another thing with newt's commander i'll be there man i'll mean i'll see whatever they do next but they clearly have no plan i have no idea what they're gonna do yeah so that's my final thoughts on this movie uh see it i guess <laughs> i don't know i mean definitely wait till it's on hbo if you listen it'll to be this on you hbo yet it'll be fine yeah okay oh, boy. anything else kevin no that's it for me i think we covered it all right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast. We've been nerdy for 30. Like and subscribe if you can, wherever you can. Five stars, five stars. And we'll be back next week. We have a uh, special teaser episode that we're going to release earlier in the week. So that'll be fun. Be on the lookout for that. Stay nerdy, friends. Bye. Bye.